Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It is true, people. Author, or author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life and video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. When I say across the genres, I mean it. YA author up there now, Jason Reynolds. Uh, I just finished editing my interview with Lee Goodkin, the uh, immersion journalist and memoirist. And, oh, it's a good conversation. So that's going to be up very shortly. It's almost a new month. So we're going to put that up probably tomorrow or uh, Thursday. So you can check all that out at authormagazine.org. We're also funded by the people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. Supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Uh, as I mentioned, we just finished our big yearly conference, did it virtually this year. Going to do a little one, a sort of a, a short one in January, all uh, probably all virtual. Well, not probably, it's going to be all virtual, but this is going to focus on just the craft, the craft and the business of writing and no pitching, no trying to sell your stuff. That's okay. It's good to do, but sometimes it's good just to focus on writing. And that's what we're going to be doing. And I'm going to be teaching, I believe, uh, how to write a book proposal. Oh, yes, that's right. I'll be teaching that. So you can check that out uh, if you want to join the PNWA, wherever you are. No matter, wherever you are, across this great globe of ours, you can do it at pnwa.org. And uh, so speaking of conferences, I will be teaching, I just learned, uh, this, oh, no, this edge, uh, November 7th, November 7th, like two weeks, uh, at the Writer's Digest yearly conference, which is going to be, of course, virtual. I will be teaching fearless writing. Yes, I will be. Yes, I will. So that you can check it out, probably at writer, writersdigest.com, or I don't know, you'll have to Google it, Writers Digest Writers Conference. Anyway, I'm going to be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Speaking of fearless writing, it's, it's uh, I guess, sequel, I guess, the book. Everyone has what it takes. My new, I got the edits back hmm, from my editor, my new editor. Loving it. I love this process. I love working with an editor. Maybe it would be different if I was writing fiction. It's a different kind of thing, but I love the back and forth the uh, questions, the changes. I find it very exciting. It's like a conversation I get to have with someone who's interested in having that conversation. That's just how I feel. Thought I'd share it with you. But enough about me. You know what we got today? A debut author. And he's a good one. Yes, he is. He's an up-and-comer. I'm glad I got to him when we did. His name is Brian Salfon. And, um, well, different kind of background. He worked in criminal justice for nearly 20 years, more than 15 of them with law enforcement agencies, in New York, as the chief investigative analyst for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, he handled cases ranging from money laundering to first-degree murder. Ouch. He now lives in Seattle, where I do, actually, and works as an investigator for the county public defender. He has published nonfiction pieces in the Detroit Jewish News and Fiction Writers Review. And the name of his book, which has been out for a couple of weeks now, is The Night Workers. And it's a good one, people. Yes, it is. So let's talk to the author himself. Brian, how are you doing? Good. Thank you very much, Phil, for having me on the show. It is my pleasure. Welcome. Uh, so we, you got to fill me in a little bit. I want to learn about, I want to hear about being a chief investigative analyst, what that is. I'm sort of trying to picture it. I like, I'm doing the thing that some men do and they think they know everything, and I'm trying to imagine that I actually know what that is, though I don't. But before we get to that, let's go back a little bit. Uh, the Night Workers, an ambitious novel. Um, 
shows a lot of care with it. Um, this is written by someone, I think, who's been interested in writing for a long time. Is that true? Yeah, Meaning I mean, you. it goes back to a um, elementary school work that I did called The Hand. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book, The Hug Machine, but that's a children's book that I read to my kids where it's just a kid no. who's hugging everything. He hugs trees, he hugs fire hydrants, and some of this is kind of <laughs> yucky in the um, time that we're living in now. But it's, right. a, it's a story without any plot, any problems, and it's just a series of hugging. So I wrote something, um, you know, way before that book that's similar but much more sinister. It's called The Hand, and it's uh-huh. about a hand that just moves through a house and strangles different family members. So Ooh. I was maybe nine or eight when I wrote that story, and um, it was basically done with crayons and pictures of hands moving through the house. Right. And so pretty much since then, I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> Do you know, Brian, that's so interesting. Uh, and I, so I've been interviewing writers for a long time, and I kind of I always like to find out where it started and when it started. And I think, although I have not actually documented it, I've not done the math, but I think age nine is pretty much the average age. Like that's when it kind of kicks in for most people. Like there's something about that. That's what it was for me, too. You know, or I kind of where I told a story or I wrote a story down, and I was like, "This is, this is pretty good." And you started with crime. You started with crime, Brian, of a sort, right? right? And in some ways, it was the most radical thing that I'll ever write because there's no structure, there's no right. cliche, there's just 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 like a hand just moving through the house. I think maybe around this time, though, the author of the Arthur the Aardvark series. Yeah, um, yeah. I think his name is Mark Brown. I think he came yep. to my elementary school Ooh. and spoke and did a demonstration. And I think seeing that an author wasn't something that was up in some other planet, an actual person, and then watching him just draw the author character in wow. front of us, where it's just line, line, and then suddenly it pops out on that uh, whiteboard that he was using. Um, I think maybe seeing that helped me see that an author could be just some ordinary person who's just writing. So um, I think you that know, could have been a good... Visual, That's uh, no small me. thing. That is no small thing. I, I I went to a high school for writer to to write for like the arts. It had this magnet program, and uh, they did actually have a novelist come to uh, come to the class. But I'd never heard of his book, and I, I mean I knew intellectually he was a novelist, so I knew he was a real writer. But it, I, it would have been very different for me if I had met an actual writer whose stuff I'd read. And I never all my life. I don't know. Did you ever go to readings and stuff? Because I, until I started interviewing people, I never met mm-hmm. like a writer. You know, they were just right. always these other people. What about you? Yeah. Aside I, from, I mean, I did Mark go Brown. to some readings when I was in college. And I think by that time I had gotten the mystique back, which was maybe not helpful oh. for writing. Because I yeah. think whenever you're thinking about the writer as this established, gleaming idol, then that yeah. can get in the way when you're actually trying to write. Because you're thinking, yeah. I'm not that person. That's and right. when you see that person at the table with a stack of books and you hear them yeah. reading, you're not seeing the hours that they spent getting it wrong, getting it wrong, or yeah. you're not hearing in their heads their thoughts as they're reading out loud. They're like, I probably could have been writing this differently. Like maybe I'd revise it even now. So right. um, I think it can give you a false sense of a finished product um, if you're going to readings and not seeing the process that led to it. I, I just think it's important. And one of the reasons I, I started doing Author Magazine uh, and, and I insisted that there be video interviews, not written ones. And and I started doing this show 
was I really wanted, I mean, I was thinking of being people who aren't writers listen to the show. I know, but I writers in particular, I wanted them to know that writers were just people. They were just people. Like they aren't these gods upon a pedestal that just, they get up and they think about it and they make mistakes and they worry. I, I mean, cause I think I put them on pedestals for way too long and I was never going to be on a pedestal myself. So how could I be one, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's one of those, um, one of those myths about writing that can really get in the way of doing it. Like, I think one of the myths is that a writer, you know, goes up on their mountain, they write something down on stone, or maybe it's delivered to them on stone. And then they come down from the mountain and then they say, you're welcome. And then the world is just saying, thank you for, you know, your work. And I think that if that's your impression, um, that can again, get in the way of doing the actual work that it takes to move the commas around, to throw out sections and put in new sections. So, all right. So you, you tell the story and you're like, okay, I'm hooked. I want to tell stories, but obviously um, your chief investigative analyst for the Brooklyn district attorney's office, when you went, I assume you went to college. Yeah. I did go to college. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> did you? Well, so, I mean, the I goal out was myself. always, I lost interest. So not everybody does yeah. it, but I assume you did. Yeah. No, I mean, I understand the dropping out part of it, too. But, yeah, the goal was always to be a writer, but I I always knew that I needed some type of a day job. Um, Immediately after college, I had a brief stint working in publishing. And I saw um, a bit that working in publishing is not the same as doing the writing. So I wanted to find a job that would be interesting, that could give me material. So I was looking at ads that just popped out as like, oh, that seems like a weird bull of years. But then oh. the weird thing that I could do for a couple of years turned out to be a decades-long um, career. Um, but, um, yeah, so I got a job. My first position was not doing every type of crime, from money laundering to first-degree murder, um, right. you know, per the pitch. But it it was mostly um, – it was almost all white-collar crime, and it started mostly with frauds. And then I spent another chunk of that career in corruption cases. And money laundering was one of the common threads in all the different types of cases that I worked on that were right. just, you know, straight up violence. Like if you mug somebody on the street, you don't need to launder your money. But if you are a corrupt politician and you're somehow getting, you know, some money on the side, or if you're skimming different insurance companies or Medicaid, you know, once you're getting the money, you need to find out a way to spend it or find out a way to make it look legitimate. Um, so money laundering came to me. It followed me when I moved to the Brooklyn district attorney's office where, um, I was the first investigative analyst. So the title of chief was a little bit tongue in cheek at first because I was the only, (laughs) I was the chief of my spreadsheet for a while. Um, but then we hired more people and built out a team. So the, the money laundering part of it played out on everything from, um, you know, drug smuggling, gun smuggling cases. Um, and then um, if if the murder was somehow uh, not related to money at all, then there is no money laundering. It's just trying to get rid of the body. But um, yeah, I mean, all of, so you asked before about what my day was like. So what? some of that was yeah. looking through bank records, looking through telecommunications records, seeing that guy A calls B and then guy uh-huh. B calls guy C. And there's like this pattern that guy B seems to be the middleman between A and C. Right. Um, some of it was making maps because people with mobile devices are just always having data about where they are. 
Right. So if we were trying to find evidence that a guy went to a place to do a thing, we might look at his phone records and show that the phone is, you know, pinging along the way to the place and then pinging right. away from the place at just the right times. So that could be um, part of the evidence against them. So, so you were, yeah. so you were doing sort of, you were like a, a desk bound investigator. You were a, or were you out there on the streets with your, with your, with your magnifying glass or were you, was it all data and, and, and this sort of thing? So yeah, that job um, was 99% at my desk. They were detective um, investigators who were assigned to the offices that I worked at. And then my office also worked with NYPD or New York State Police. And those okay. were the guys who would go out and do the street stuff. Um, once in a while, if there was some project where they could have a non-officer, kind of like a doofy guy go out and do a thing, I would volunteer for it just to get out. Yeah. And one of those projects was what gave me the idea that led to the night workers, or at least it gave me the idea that led to the book that I wrote and then threw away, but then that book led to night workers. <laughs> so there were um, allegations about certain fancy New York apartments where depending on the race of the person who is trying to get an apartment there, they might have different requirements for them. They might try to charge uh, yeah, you know, yeah. extra money up front yeah. if you weren't a white person. Right. So they would have people come in with like a fake name and like, here's my fake salary. Here's my fake background. And then we would try to see if they were be, if they were charging different rates, depending on the race of the person who was going in. So I was, you know, pretending to shop at these apartments that I could never afford in real in reality. Right. And, um, and I was pretending to look in the apartments. I was like opening the doors. I was seeing if the sinks were running. And then I just had this idea like, Oh, what if I open this door and a body falls out? And then right. that little seed idea was kind of the the, the basis for um, the book that would eventually, through many iterations, evolve into the Night Workers. So I want to get to the Night Workers. I, I mean, first of all, what a great job for a guy who's going to write. I mean, so does, does the Night Workers? This is a kind of a publishy sort of thing. Are they shelving it in crime or is it in in just general fiction? Because uh, I feel like it could be either place. How are they trying to market it as? Um, good question. I mean, my agent calls it literary crime and that sounds yeah. good to me. I'm happy. Yeah. I'm just happy to be at the table. Right now. Yeah, I totally get it. I get it. I'm just curious what they, how, cause it's, it's a thing in the publishing world. What shelf is it going to be on? You know, and I was just curious right. because it could, it could, either, it could be either or really. Right. Yeah. I think it's in the crime world, but maybe um, the narrow part of the crime world where there's some discussion of St. Augustine in the book and right. lots of Walt Whitman is being thought about. In the book. Right. So, okay. So, but what, so you see so this job and now you're, you're still doing, you're still, you're still working in the public defender's office as we speak. Is this still a thing or not? Yeah. I mean, I'm not on the clock now. So if anybody is right. paying taxes okay. out here, I don't want okay, to think good. that I'm doing an interview but, once. So yeah, now I work for people who are accused of crimes who can't afford their own attorneys. So I've switched from working with prosecutors right. to working with um, defenders. Right. And so how is that? I mean, so first of all, I also had a day job for a very long time, uh, but mine was waiting tables and that was very rough on me emotionally uh, just for my ego and for feeling not like a success at all. And that was tough for me because I really, the only plan was to be a writer and that just wasn't happening. But when did you, so you, the plan was always to be a writer, but then you ended up with like this career. Did that bother you or were you okay with 
the job aspect of your life or was it really just like, I just can't wait to get out of here kind of thing? Um, well, I did meet good friends and I did like a lot of the work that I was doing, but I always wanted to be a writer and I did feel a bit embarrassed about the state of my writing career until uh, maybe five minutes before you and I began this call. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, um, I think that that's a good thing to talk about because I think people yeah. might see a book come out as a debut and they're like, oh, he sat down, he wrote a book. And now yeah. it's out. <laughs> but yeah. um, before this book came others, um, I wrote scripts for um, a while too. And um, a lot of what I worked on gave me the tools that I needed to write the night workers. But yeah. there was a long time where I felt out of sync with um, where I wanted to be with both my writing and um, my work at the same time. Yeah. How did you, how did you deal with that? Because it's a thing, you know, for a lot of writers, you've got to, you know, you've got to learn what your voice is and how you want to write and learn how to tell a story. There's a lot you just have to learn. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it can happen very quickly for writers. I know plenty of those, but like me, and it sounds like for you, it takes some time. And so how did you deal with that? How did you deal with it? Like how, how did, how did you, how did you learn? Did you have anything that you, any wisdom that you learned from that to make it easier? Or was it just something you had to just sort of get through? Um, it might have been something I had to get through. I don't know if I feel qualified to give any wisdom because this did take me a long time to get here. I wrote a number of books that um, didn't work out, but I did learn from those books. Um, yeah. Something. I mean, I wish I had learned it right away, but I'm yeah, glad well. that I have it now. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean that. I mean, depending on you know, I think that that's another um, kind of important myth to debunk is just that you know, you, you've either got it or you don't, because I think some people right. are lucky where early on they're able to figure out something that works for them. Um, yeah. Something that's dangerous is to think that whatever worked for some other person, like you could read a story about how somebody writes and you're like, well, let me try to write like that. And that's something that I've done. Um, yeah. You know, in the Stephen King book, he talks about, he bangs out a first draft all the way through and then he revises it afterwards. Right. And that advice is, you know, good if you've got that type of brain, but yeah. it's not necessarily good for everybody. So I think part of the challenge for me was to figure out a way um, for me to work um, without being distracted by other people's successful techniques. Yeah. 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 You've got to find the way you, got, you do have to find. And I can tell you, having talked to so many writers, there's a lot of ways to do it. Like around outlining, it's sort of like if you are someone who's an outliner, then you better outline like you need it. But if you're not, if you're really not an outliner, then the outline will only screw you up, you know. And so you've got to learn how you do it. And what is irritating to me is when I hear writers say, no, you should never outline or no, you've got to outline. It, oh, it just drives me crazy because I know that there's always going to be people who can't do one or can't do the other. And so and did it take you a little while to find like how like how you worked? Did you did you did you did you have to experiment around a lot like? trying to outline or trying to write really fast or was there, was there a fair amount of searching just around how you write? Yeah. I mean, I think that that was part of why it's taken me to a bit to get where I am. Cause I would again, get kind of tricked by other people's techniques. I mean, I don't yeah. mean that they set out to trick me, but right. I would think, you know, Oh, this is the way this person did it. You know, they got the first sentence. Great. They got the second sentence. Great. You know, like revising as you go, a lot of time can get 
in that. But if you've got something in your head where you can hold the story together with that, and if that works for you, then go for it. But for yeah. me, I needed to figure out a way where, and, and this is where script writing for me became helpful, where I would work out an outline, but be able to play with it. And then within the outline, like I knew the character has to break into a building in, in one scene, for example. Right. So that kind of frees me up to have some fun with that scene. Like now that I know she's going to break in, she's going to get the thing, I could have a little bit of fun with her thinking about something like, Oh, this reminds her of her mother. This reminds her of, you know, her time in prison. And that's something I did with the night workers that I hadn't done with other novels where I had the outline, but I think that to use another messy metaphor, it's kind of jazzy where, you know, it's going to go from this chord change to that chord change, but you can noodle around in the middle of it. And I think that for me, and again, not suggesting this for anybody, the combination of having a, structure but being very loose with it um was the right balance for me that took me a while to yeah. figure out yeah that's actually you know i would say that the way it breaks down is that's about 40 percent of writers that are like a kind of outline you know mm-hmm. uh, they get a basic sense and then but then they got to be loose and, and let stuff come well so that's that's great and so you know you um when you started working on the the night workers and you know uh brian described it as a, a literary um crime. I think that's a good description for it. And I, you know, I, I admire that. And that has some, takes some courage too, because, you know, you got it because crime fiction can read a certain way and it can be, and it, and, and you can worry that your reader doesn't want you getting into character and, and, and their thoughts and background so much. And then if you are heavy in the literary, people don't want that crime element. So you had to be willing, or I should say you had to see the value in blending those two things that they belong together. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not totally right. rare, but it's not as common as just a straight crime novel, for instance. Right. So you had to get comfortable yeah, with Yeah, there's lots of different kind of mystery niches. And um, I think that most of my favorite books fall somewhere in between. So it's hard yeah. to find a right balance because I understand yeah. publisher's perspective. We want to find readers. If we tell readers that it's in this vein, then that can help readers find the book. But yeah. when you're writing the book, it, um, depending on – if your goal, you know, depending on what your goals are, if your goals are to do something a little bit different in your own way, um, those can be distracting because you could try to make some compromises and then end up with something that still doesn't connect. Um, right. But if you're, if you're able to, you know, meet your own goals, but at the same time, you know, listen to the audience. And again, the sloppy jazz metaphor is, you know, if you're performing with an audience, you can kind of ramp it up if things are getting too quiet or you can, take it down a little bit right. if it seems like you're getting a vibe from the audience that that's what they need. Well, listen, uh, it was really successful in my opinion. And so congratulations. Uh, the work really, you know, every once in a while I can read books and I can feel the work the writer put into it. And I don't mean that, you know, pejoratively. I just can feel like this thing was, uh, I want to say labored over, but cared about let's say. And it, so it really felt that way. And I hope you are happy with it because you should, you should be. I think it, Thank I you. Think you did something good here, Brian. And so did you know when you were working on it, did you feel like, I think I got something here. I think, I think this, did, did you have any sense of that or were you refusing to give yourself that? Um, I mean, I was going into it as my surrender novel because I was starting to write scripts and those were getting a better reception than my novels had gotten. Mm. But when I shared chapters of this book with my new writers group, 
Um, they responded right away in a way that readers hadn't responded to my work before. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, uh, my, my, my writer's group that helped me write this book, that helped me revise this book, gave me, I think, enough encouragement to keep going when I hit certain obstacles, when sections weren't making sense. Um, you know, they were a huge help with that. Wow. And so that was, that, I mean, but did you feel different about it or did it feel in writing it the same as all the other stuff? No, it, it felt different in part because I was giving up in a lot of ways. Like I was giving up. I had tried to write more of a hard-boiled novel, like uh -huh. he walks into a dirty bar, he orders yeah, a yeah, dirty yeah. martini. Like, right. And I had tried right. to do a lot of other things. And this one, I really thought, I'm going to try to make a story that is interesting to me as I'm writing it, but I'm also going to try to at least, you know, meet the structure of a mystery in a way that's maybe not totally formulaic, but it'll, you know, hit the beats as we go. Um, so it did feel uh, different in that I was more playful, but also more open-hearted when I was writing it. Um, I think I gave more of my self to the characters as I was writing it in part because it was a surrender novel, but there's another element um, that we haven't talked about yet. So I started writing this right when my son was born and oh. having a kid and just yeah. like shifting my perspective from being very me oriented to being like, yeah. Oh, there's another person. And then also like, Oh, look at this neighborhood. Cause having the kid got me out of my apartment, right. it got me, you know, meeting people. Um, and um, so a lot of big changes were wow. happening at the same time. So well, that's another that reason why writing this book. I could feel that through the book. I mean, that's what I was feeling. It seemed I, I didn't could put my finger on it, but oh, you just so you were waking up to the the deeper feeling of family in a way. Because right. I know what that is. absolutely. Wow. wow, interesting surrender book. I love that, Brian. I love that the surrender book. We all got to surrender. <laughs> we all got to do it at some point. You know, you got to drop something, and usually. I've, I've interviewed enough writers who have like, try, try, try. And then they kind of give up something and then things can finally come through. They have to give up mm -hmm. some, you have to let some, I don't know what it is, kind of your, I, your previous conceived notions of how it's supposed to go in some way. But right. I think we all have to surrender in a way to finally let this thing happen, to let it happen. If that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So we were, we were emailing a little beforehand and you and you mentioned that you that you I think if I'm quoting correctly that you you also felt that what it takes to write the book you want to write is what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. Is that true? Do you feel that way? That there's a connection between that? I mean, it's true for me. I think that there is. We talked about a couple of myths of the author, like coming up to the mountain and getting the stone tablets. There's also the story of the author who has to like trash their personal life, become an alcoholic. Right. Um, right. And I, I, I think that there is a lot of danger in that particular myth. Some of it is very obvious danger. Um, right. I think some of it is ignoring the fact that those authors might need an editor who's basically a co-writer. Um, right. Right. But I think that, um, you know, for me getting, um, I changed jobs to become a supervisor um, and I shifted from just white collar crime to different types of crime um, that had me listening to a lot of wiretaps too. So I was hearing a lot of voices that I wasn't used to hearing. Oh. Um, I was kind of peeping into lives that I hadn't yeah. spent that much time paying attention to. 
And then again, just getting out of my apartment and meeting people um, because I had to because of my kid um, was, I think, a big part of the, the night worker's experience. God, listening to wiretaps must be strange. I was watching a special on the um, on the breaking of the Gambino family in New York and, you know, how they did that. And a lot of it was wiretaps. And just listen to them describe, I mean, it's such an intimate thing you're doing. Yeah. I mean, because sometimes it's just people, I assume you, you get the crime stuff, but you get their just their banal daily life. Yeah. Doesn't that come through too? Yeah, little bits of it. I mean, you're not allowed to listen to them if they're not talking about committing oh, okay. a crime. So you have to kind okay. of turn it off and then turn it on again. But right. just hearing people's voices, hearing people calling their family members, um, you know, that was something that struck me and stuck with me. Like there are some people that when you listen to, they're just funny, like no matter what they're talking about, naturally funny people. And right. so there were some people that I was like excited to listen to. I'm like, I know what are you going to say today? Um, and then just hearing, you know, the amount of calls to family members, um, hearing how people would bring their family into the business. And you're some part of you is like, don't do it. Cause you know that they're right. just going to get incriminated. Right. Too. Um, and I think again, in the back of the back of my mind, that might've had some role in how I'm thinking about, um, you know, people, the characters in, in, in the night workers, just the different connections that they have. It's not just all, let's just crime all day. There's all the right. family stuff too. They still have to have dinner. They still have to, you yeah. know, uh, take a walk around the block. So. Yeah. Well, it really, it has a fantastic sense of verisimilitude, which is always satisfying. And so you really, it was a very rich piece of work. Congratulations. If people want to like learn more about Brian Selfon, and maybe, I don't know, have you visit their virtual book club or some such thing? How could they learn about you, Brian? So um, I have a website. It is just BrianSelfon.com, and um, it needs some updating, so I will do that soon. You're also welcome to just come to my house if it wasn't for the coronavirus, I would say. (laughs) Um, I'm always excited to meet people. But, yeah, so right now my website is away. There's a form. If you fill it out, I get an email. So I'm definitely open, excited to be part of uh, book clubs. That's awesome. All right. Well, I got one more question for you, Brian, and maybe you've thought about this if you listened to any of these shows. I need you to finish this sentence for me. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Um, It's taught me that writing is not the worst way to process your mistakes and work out your feelings. I like it. I like it. What a nice personal answer. Brian, uh, hey, listen, congratulations. And uh, thank you, Bill. Maybe I'll get you back on this show. when the next one comes out, which I'm sure there will be. Yeah. Yeah. There's another one, right? Yeah. It's in the works. Good man. Good man. Okay, Brian, congratulations and good luck. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Take it easy. All right, people. Yes. Yes. Process your feelings. Learn about your mistakes. It's true. Listen, you know what next Tuesday is? Yes, you do. Well, I just can't do it. I can't do a show next Tuesday. Uh, I'm just not, I just won't be there. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the show the day after. That's right. On Wednesday, the day after the election. And I'm going to have Clifford Brooks, the fellow who I was interviewing and then got cut off because my power, I'm going to have him back on. We're going to finish that conversation. So November 4th, Wednesday, November 4th, we'll do it if you like to listen live. Otherwise, thank you to my producer, Mr. RJ Jeffries. Thank you to you all. Find something you love to do and go do it.